0: Christ is Risen! Welcome to Episode 2, titled, Controversies Resolved. Let me begin today's episode with a short passage from Romans 15, verses 5-6. to Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may, with one mind and one mouth, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For today's episode, we will talk about two ancient church controversies, One of them is the date of Easter, and the other is iconoclasm. We will talk about what each controversy entailed, how the controversies were resolved, and whether the outcome made that big of a difference in the course of church history. And a very important question is, did the controversy ending automatically mean that everything was completely in order for the rest of history? There are some questions other than this that we will look at, but these are the main ones. So first, let's start with the date of Easter. I gotta state from now that I am providing here only a very overly simplistic idea of what happened. The point of the episode is not to resolve or give a historical critical overview of the controversy. Rather, it's an attempt at looking at the way the church resolved issues in the past. So don't worry, no complicated mathematical equations of how the date of Easter is calculated here. I haven't done math in about seven years since I started studying theology, so maybe I shouldn't comment on math anyways. The early church always celebrated the feast of the resurrection of our Lord, but for better or for worse, not everyone celebrated on the same day. Most churches celebrated on Sunday, while the churches in Ephesus celebrated on the 14th of Nisan, regardless of what day of the week that was. Each church had its logic for celebrating the way it did, or maybe I should say each camp, because there are many churches in each of those camps, but predominantly the 14th of Nisan is the minority, and they are the churches of Ephesus. So, most churches thought that since each Sunday is a memorial of the resurrection of the Lord, then it makes sense that we celebrate the Feast of the Resurrection on Sunday, the day of the week in which the Lord rose. Seeing that Sunday comes after Saturday, which is the Shabbat day, Uh, The Sunday of the resurrection is like the 8th day after the 7th day of creation, so God creates everything in 6 days, rests on the 7th, and then the resurrection takes place on Sunday, or the 8th day, marking the new beginning. In their minds, 8 signified a new beginning, which makes sense if you keep in mind the fact that the world was rebuilt after the flood through the family of Noah, which consisted of 8 people. So this was the logic for those who celebrated on Sunday. Now let us turn to those who celebrated on the 14th of Nisan. Their logic was straightforward as well. We know that Jesus was crucified on the 12th of Nisan. We know that he rose on the 14th of Nisan. So why should we celebrate on any other day? Whether it falls on a Friday or a Saturday should it matter. All days can be dedicated to the Lord and his glorious resurrection. According to the ecclesiastical history of Eusebius, this controversy entailed back and forth letters between bishops in the 3rd century they reached no definitive conclusion. So Victor, the first bishop of Rome, wanted to settle the situation by force. It seems that Rome had something for flexing and trying to subdue all bishops since day one. But ultimately, he failed. He contemplated excommunicating everyone who celebrated on the 14th of Nisan, if they do not conform to the majority practice. Thank God for people like saint of Lyon, who managed to put him in his place. No excommunications actually ended up taking place thanks to St. Irenaeus. Records shows that Irenaeus was all for the celebration of Easter on the Day of the Lord, as in Sunday, however it was far more important for him, as any sensible person would, that church unity be preserved at all costs. My opinion matters less than the unity of the church. Approximately a century later, the Council of Nicaea settled the date and had the whole system for calculating the date of Easter, which would be always on Sunday from then on. The Church of Alexandria was to determine the date per this complex system, which I'm not about to get into. I will tell you, however, that there are a few myths out there about the way Easter is determined. One famous myth is that Easter celebration must be after the Jewish Passover. In 2011, for example, Passover was April the 18th to the 26th, but Easter was celebrated on the 24th. Passover is not actually a one-day celebration for Jews like Easter is for us. Interesting how myths and legends persist despite the First Ecumenical Council settling the debate, making all churches celebrate on the same day. Or so it thought. Why would I say that, you might ask? Well, here's why. The Church of Rome revised the calendar, changing it to what is now known as the Gregorian calendar, or Gregorian Pascalion, if you want to use the technical term. If you're hyperdox or too zealous, you might jump into the conclusion that this is because It is Rome, and Rome is always wrong. Hold up, here is a list of Orthodox churches that do not celebrate on the Julian calendar. First, the Eastern Orthodox Church of Finland. Second is the Armenian Apostolic Church, which is divided on the date, so if you're in Armenia, you celebrate on the Gregorian calendar, but if you're part of the Armenian Patriarchate in Jerusalem, you are on the Old or Julian calendar. The Malankara Orthodox Church in India celebrates according to the Gregorian calendar as well. I do not see anyone distributing anathemas to those churches for celebrating on a different date from that which Nicaea has dictated. And don't get me wrong, I'm not asking for anyone to do that, I'm simply saying that even though a matter might be settled, whether by accepting the status quo, which might entail accepting the diversity in practice, or by dictating what should happen by an ecumenical council, the diversity in practice may well continue, and this is a prime example of that. And even when the situation is somewhat fixed, myths and legends will continue to be created around why we celebrate when we celebrate. This is simply the reality of the human condition. I want to conclude our chat about this controversy with a rather lengthy quote from Synaxis, which is the name of the blog San Vladimir's Orthodox Theological Seminary produces. It's a really nice blog. This particular post is titled Unity and Diversity, the Opportunities and the Challenges, just in case you want to go back to it. I strongly recommend you do that after this episode, actually. For now, let us read the following quote together. The Church's diversity and unity was also articulated in a striking way by the 2nd century. In the midst of a heated crisis in the Church concerning the date on which Easter should be celebrated, Saint-Erenais of Lyon considered the various practices and dates and said, The difference in practice confirms the unity in faith. Yes, you heard that correctly. The differences... Confirm the unity. They testify to it. They strengthen it. This pronouncement challenges our logic. Wouldn't you have thought that it's unity in practice that confirms the unity in faith? Well, that can happen too. But what is being said here is also true and deeply important. The very fact that we can embody diversity, yet agree in the matters of the greatest significance, confirms. And deepens our unity. St. Irenaeus' saying confirms the principle of unity in diversity, or perhaps diversity in unity. Unity, in the most important sense, unity concerning the things that really matter, is not threatened but enriched by diversity. For St. Irenaeus, the different dates of the Paschal celebration did not threaten but even enriched what really mattered namely the fact and the life-giving content of the Lord's Pascha itself. So enough about the date of Easter, and let us turn to a greater and a more recent controversy. By more recent, here I mean 8th century rather than 2nd or 3rd, and this would be iconoclasm. I won't spend much time on that controversy, but I am bringing it forward to show that the overly simplistic narrative we are often spoon-fed does not reflect the complexity of the issue. Usually, the narrative goes like this. There are two camps, people who loved icons, known as iconodules or iconophiles, and people who saw them as idolatrous, and they are called iconoclasts. Iconoclasts killed many iconophiles, and after much debate, the iconophiles won the day on the 7th Ecumenical Council, and that is why the Vespers celebrating this council is called a Triumph of Orthodoxy. Now, here's the stuff you won't hear in the average Sunday school class. The iconophiles were actually divided into two groups. One was indeed orthodox, had a proper understanding of what it meant to venerate an icon. They knew that we are not venerating wood and paint, but rather venerating those who are presented through wood and paint by venerating their image. They also knew the difference between worship and adoration on the one hand and veneration on the other hand. They knew worship and adoration belong to God alone, whereas veneration belongs to icons and the saints they represent. However, the other group was not so sober-minded. They began having indeed idolatrous ideas about the elements that go into producing the icons, having intrinsic holiness to themselves. Their blind piety took such a bad turn that they began scraping paint off the icons in the church and pouring the powder of the paint into the chalice with the communion. You might have your eyebrows raised at hearing this now, Back then, people raised the sword when they saw the actions and much blood was shed at the time. Of course, real saints were killed for the protection of icons and, more importantly, for the protection of the doctrine of the Incarnation, which closely relates to icons. I mean, an orthodox confession of theology of icons and an orthodox confession of the doctrine of the Incarnation very much inform one another. Now, let us look at the iconoclasts. We often assumed that they were people who hated and destroyed the icons. The matter was not so simple either. Some did indeed hate and destroyed icons and killed people who owned and venerated icons. However, there were more moderate but still heretical iconoclasts who did not mind the presence of icons for decorative purposes so long as they are high up and are not being venerated by the faithful. Of course, this is still not acceptable for theological reasons, But let us look for now at the way the situation was actually settled. Multiple councils took place. Each council came to a different conclusion. An iconoclastic council was in fact considered the seventh ecumenical council until what is now celebrated as the seventh ecumenical council was convened. This council was not simply an iconophile council. It was more than that. First, it was a council convened by the orders of a woman of questionable understanding of power and authority, namely Empress Irene, or Emperor Irene, as she liked to call herself. She was so obsessed with power that when she felt her son was trying to take the throne, she ordered his eyes to be gouged, and he died as a result. History has mixed views on her reputation and morals, depending on who you read, but I won't get into that. She also appointed a lay person to become patriarch, just because she knew he would support her in exonerating the iconophile position. This was, of course, in direct opposition to the canons that stated that no one should be ordained a patriarch after having been a lay person. right away. These canons were very much affirmed in ecumenical councils, such as the 6th Ecumenical Council, which took place only a century earlier. You couldn't have forgotten just a century ago what happened. So it is not like she didn't know what she was doing, and if she didn't, it's not like the clergymen who ordained him ...didn't know that they were breaking canons to ordain the man which Irene wanted to be the patriarch. It could be that they thought ends justify the means... ...or it could be that they were aware of how much Irene could turn into a bully... ...who would order them to be punished, exiled, or even killed. The council exonerated the Orthodox camp within the iconophile camp. So the council rejected all extremes, including scraping icons and scraping their paint and mixing that with the communion elements. It also condemned destroying icons and preventing the veneration of icons by having them but putting them so far away from people. Even after this council took place, its decrees were translated from Greek to Latin and sent to the Pope of Rome. Sadly, the translation was so poor that the word venerate came to be translated as adore or worship in Latin. This, of course, gave the Pope in Rome the wrong idea. It was not till later that this was actually clarified. Interesting fact on the side, even though they disagreed on this, they actually never went into schism because of this. So, the point of sharing this particular controversy with you is to show you that the way debates were settled wasn't always the prettiest. Different camps on each side, bad translations, questionable application of church canons, and the list goes on. And again, with the date of Easter, you saw how there were threats of excommunication and St. Irenaeus, having to step in to preserve church unity, and even when Nicaea settles the debate, the diversity in practice persists, and the legends continue to be created and believed by many. And yes, guys, these are the controversies that were actually settled. Now until the next episode, I want you to imagine how unresolved controversies might have looked like. Now let us conclude today's episode with a quote from St. Irenaeus of Lyons in his book Against the Heresies, since we already talked about him. Quote, But as the Sun, the creature of God, is one and the same throughout the world, so also the preaching of the truth shines everywhere and enlightens all men that are willing to come to a knowledge of the truth. Nor will anyone... Of the rulers in the churches, however highly gifted he may be, in point of eloquence, teach doctrines different from those, for no one is greater than the Master, that is Christ. Nor, on the other hand, will he who is deficient in power of expression inflict injury on tradition. For the faith, being ever one and the same, neither does one who is able, at great length to discourse regarding it, make any addition to it. Nor does one who can say but little diminish it. End quote. If this episode worried you about how controversies have been resolved, I hope this quote gives you peace, as it reassures that we have our faith protected by He who gave it, Christ Himself, and preserved in tradition the deposit of our faith. Until the next episode, Christ is risen.